Hi, I'm Cody Goff with the award-winning Curiosity.com, and today we're going to talk about the future of the human race. I'm Ashley Hamer, and yes, today's topic really is that big of a deal. What if you could customize your children, pick their eye and hair color, or eliminate genetic diseases? Or what if you could rewrite DNA to improve intelligence or athletic ability, both in humans and in animals? Science fiction is becoming reality thanks to a technique called CRISPR-Cas9. And today we'll talk to a leading expert about what's next for that cutting-edge science. Every week we explore what we don't know because curiosity makes you smarter. This is the Curiosity Podcast. Today we're going to talk with Dr. Sam Sternberg, an assistant professor in the biochemistry and molecular biophysics department at Columbia University, and we're going to be talking about CRISPR-Cas9 technology, which is one of his specialties. But before we dive into today's interview, I was hoping that Ashley could help us understand a little bit about what CRISPR-Cas9 is to set the stage. Yeah, it's really exciting stuff, but it's also really complex So CRISPR is a technique for editing DNA, which is the blueprint behind every cell in your body. When you can edit DNA, you can potentially change anything about an organism, whether that's making a potato healthier or reducing an embryo's risk of genetic diseases or even fighting cancer in a living human. So when you edit DNA, does that edit every cell in your body's DNA or just certain cells? So that depends on what you're doing it to. If you do it to an embryo, you can potentially change every single cell in that embryo's body. But you can also do it on living humans, and that will only change the certain cells you affect. And we don't know whether those get passed on to offspring. Okay, because when an embryo is developing, it's growing lots and lots of cells. So if you edit some of those original cells, potentially, when it's dividing all these cells, they're dividing in the same way as that modified cell And so let's say you edit a gene that is supposed to pass down a chronic illness. Supposedly, hypothetically, when the embryo is multiplying its cells, all of those cells are now multiplying based off of that edited gene where they have fixed the chronic illness. And that means that when the baby is done producing all these genes, that chronic illness will no longer be there. Yes. And that is called editing the germline, I believe. And that is one way that CRISPR can change the scope of human existence. Kind of a big deal. Yes. Yes. A very big deal. So that's what it can do. Now, let me tell you how it does that. And to explain that, I'm going to talk a little bit about a bacteria's immune system. And I I promise that'll make sense in a second. So when a virus attacks a bacterial cell, it injects that cell with its DNA. If the bacteria didn't have an immune system, that DNA would take over and just kill the cell. But it does have an immune system. And here's how that works. When that viral DNA invades, the cell sends out special Cas proteins, and those break apart that DNA, copy it into the bacteria's own DNA, so that the next time the virus attacks, those Cas proteins can use the DNA that it saved to create a custom weapon called CRISPR RNA, and that will fight it more effectively. So you've got a cell, a virus comes in, the cell is like, yo, I'm not having any of that. The cell kind of copies the virus in a way but modifies it so that it's not damaging that cell, and then they kind of push it out, right? Yeah, it basically takes a token of that of that virus that invaded, and it's like, I'm saving this, I'm going to remember you, and it puts it into its own DNA for safekeeping. So kind of like if you're playing Mega Man, and you beat Cut Man, for example, 
You've beaten that boss, and then you get Cutman's power. So then you can use Cutman's scissor weapon, but you're still Mega Man. Totally like that. Yes. So basically, this is Mega Man on a genetic level. I really hope our listeners have played one of the Mega Man games because they're really fun. I haven't, but I'm still following along. So that whole thing that is happening in a bacterial cell, we've figured out how to do in any cell. So we can use that CRISPR-Cas9 system in any DNA. Cas9, by the way, is that's just, I said Cas protein, but Cas9 is just one type of Cas protein. And you'll learn more about that in the interview. But you can tell a Cas9 protein to remove a snippet of whatever DNA you don't want, then either leave it out completely or replace it with whatever snippet of DNA you do want. That makes a lot of sense. So rather than just cells curing diseases, you could have a cell change your eye color or change your height or how much you grow hair, things like that. Yeah, potentially. If we know that there's a gene for it, we could potentially change that gene. There's genes for a lot of things. <laughs> <There are. laughs> so that seems like there's a lot of implications there. Absolutely. Great. So that's CRISPR-Cas9. Hopefully you understand a little bit more about it. Dr. Sternberg will explain all of the cool stuff that he's doing with it. Yeah, he'll be able to cover it all in this conversation. But this is such an advanced, really cool technology that we... This is the first time we've done this. We've had to have a primer where Ashley actually sits me down and says, okay, here's overall what this is all about. But I was able to follow what Dr. Sternberg was saying during our conversation, even without an intimate understanding of the technology. But hopefully this was helpful in helping you understand a little bit more of the context before we dive in. Totally. I'm here with Dr. Sam Sternberg, and you work on CRISPR-Cas9. And I have to tell you this quote from my coworker. So I was talking to Ashley Hamer, and I said, you know, I'm going to interview Dr. Sternberg. Do you have any suggestions for questions or anything? And she said, just keep in mind, quote, it's one of the biggest things to hit science in like forever. This is E (laughs) equals MC squared level, unquote. So do you think that's about right? Yeah, I mean, of course, I'm biased, so I have to talk it up. I did recently walk back someone who had described it as the biggest breakthrough in all of humankind. So I wouldn't go that far, but I think in the last couple of decades in biotech, it's it's really transforming how almost all biologists do science right now. Um, and there's definitely the dream of, of, you know, tackling disease in a whole new way with CRISPR. We haven't gotten there yet. There's still going to be a lot of research and development that we need to do. But I think the dream is there, and now we have, like, a really powerful tool to begin thinking about tackling disease at the level of DNA in a way that really wasn't possible before. So high level, what is CRISPR-Cas9? Well, the analogy that is used often is uh, a pair of molecular scissors. It's basically a way to target and modify particular DNA sequences inside of cells. So the CRISPR-Cas9 enzyme itself is actually just cutting the DNA But you can do that in a way where you can bias the way that that cut DNA gets repaired to install new sequences. But what's special about CRISPR is it gives you a very powerful and easy way to target any sequence you'd like in the context of a 3 billion letter human genome. Previously, people have done gene therapy where you might randomly splice healthy genes into the genome. You have no control over where they go, how much they get expressed, what dosage they get expressed at. With CRISPR, you have much finer control because you can really target precise genes, precise sequences at the you know single letter resolution. So you mentioned being able to 
kind of heal in the way that we want. So you cut out a little bit in the middle and then you tell the genes, all right, heal in this particular way. Kind of like how a surgeon will make an incision and then stitch it in such a way so that the wound heals in a particular way. Yeah. Um, I think in the book, we used an analogy. I wrote this book with, with my PhD advisor, Jennifer Dowd. What was the book called? I, I, we should have mentioned that a earlier. Crack in Creation. A Crack in Creation. Actually, the full title, A Crack in Creation, Gene Editing and the Unthinkable Power to Control Evolution. Yeah. Um, I think in the book, we used an analogy. Old, I guess, film play editors would kind of cut reels and paste them back together in different ways if you wanted to splice out a couple frames of a scene. So it, you're cutting the DNA as a way to stimulate the repair, and then you can basically coax the cell into stitching the two ends of the DNA back together in a way that changes that sequence in a particular fashion. The other analogy that, that I often use is like find and replace. So the same way that in the word processing document, you might put in a search term, a replace term, and then through programming, you can basically find any iteration of that search term anywhere in a document and replace it with anything you'd like. CRISPR is allowing you to do the same thing with a genome, um, and you can do it across a three billion letter genome, uh, no problem. And when you're talking about the genome, you're talking about the ACGT, what are those called? Uh, Nucleotides <laughs> or bases. Bases is an easier term that gets used more often, but both work. Sure, for those bases. And you mentioned there are billions of characters long, right? How do you identify which one you want to clip out of there? Well, in terms of what change you'd like to make, I mean, that depends on are you targeting some disease associated mutation? or maybe some, uh, some gene involved in a plant's ability to grow in extreme weather conditions. But how you do the targeting, that's, that's why CRISPR was such a, a revolutionary development for gene editing. Gene editing existed well before CRISPR came along, but it was very hard to design protein molecules to target particular sequences within that vast expanse of the genome, because how do you find the right letter in 3 billion letters, right? CRISPR gives you a way to, to do that targeting with much more ease than was ever possible because the key molecule is RNA. So RNA stands for ribonucleic acid. It's kind of like DNA's molecular cousin. It's also made up of the same kinds of bases. So just like a DNA double helix is held together with base pairs, RNA and DNA can form base pairs to form an RNA-DNA double helix. And because they form base pairs the same way that DNA does, it's as easy as saying, here's the 20-letter DNA sequence I want to target. You make an RNA sequence with the same matching 20 letters, and there are your GPS coordinates to tell that Cas9 protein how to find its match. So Cas9 refers to the protein. Exactly. So the two components you need are, are the protein, Cas9, and a, a molecule of ribonucleic acid. And I should say, even within CRISPR, I mean, one of the exciting things that that I'll be tackling in my lab is, you know, Cas9 is just one of the kinds of proteins that we can harness for gene editing. There are actually others. They have different names. Most of them are Cas with a number. So now there's Cas13, Cas12. What does the Cas stand for? CRISPR associated. Oh, and what does CRISPR stand for? CRISPR stands for clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats. Oh, well, there you go. There you go. Now you know everything about it, right? Just from that acronym. <laughs> yeah, you should have just said that at the start. Yeah. <laughs> We'd be Perfectly clear. And you said palindromic. That means, I mean, I know what palindromic means, but how does that apply in this? For the gene editing use, it's honestly pretty much not relevant. But in terms of the discovery behind CRISPR, it's a property of these DNA sequences that are what makes a CRISPR a CRISPR. Um, they tend to be slightly palindromic in that you can read one strand in one direction or the other strand in the other direction. And 
they are the same sequence, kind of read backwards. Remember how I said that a bacterial cell breaks apart attacking viral DNA and copies it into its own genome? It stores that DNA in a special area separated by short segments of other genes that are arranged in palindromes, the same sequence forward as they are backward. Imagine the name Hannah, except instead of H-A-N-N-A-H, the letters are some combination of A-T-C-G, and instead of six letters, you've got 20 to 40. That's how CRISPR got its name. Like Dr. Sternberg said, CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats because that bacterial immune system is made up of snippets of viral DNA regularly spaced out by repeating palindromic snippets of bacterial DNA. Got it? I hope so. So we'll zoom out a second from the science and talk about the practical applications of this. The reason that you want to edit these genes and clip out something is because you're trying to clip out diseases, right? I'd say, I mean, certainly in the realm of human therapeutics, that's where you would use CRISPR. But the power to rewrite DNA, I mean, it pervades so many different fields because every living organism on the planet uses DNA as its, as its code. And so if you want to talk about agricultural improvements, having a way to fine tune DNA sequences is very powerful wanting to understand how biology operates. I mean, there were a couple of papers recently that um, got covered in the, in the New York Times where they used CRISPR and butterflies to understand the genetics behind wing coloration. That's the kind of question that, you know, may not have practical applications right now, but if you're a biologist and you study wing coloration, what you'd love to do is have a tool where you can change genes that you think might be involved and see if the coloration is affected. Previously, you'd have no way to do that. So you might try to go find a unique species that has different coloration patterns. You can do DNA sequencing, compare it to different species of butterflies and see maybe there's a correlation between this gene and how the, the coloration looks. But with CRISPR, you can do a very focused experiment where you take the gene you think is involved, you edit it, modify it in some way. Maybe you're turning it off, maybe you're turning it back on or turning it up or down. And now you let the animal grow and develop and see... What was the consequence of this one letter change that you made to the gene? That's the power of gene editing from a basic research perspective is you can, you can do the kinds of experiments that biologists have dreamed about doing for a long time. And now with CRISPR, you can do these, these experiments seamlessly in the lab. Now, when you talk about applying these to living beings, is this where some of the ethics comes into play with, I mean, you're kind of playing with living subjects typically for this kind of experimentation, right? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're editing living cells. Those could be cultured human cells in the laboratory that are manipulated every day anyway as a, as a kind of a research model system. That might be a mouse embryo where you want to do mass genetics using CRISPR to make the same kinds of changes to understand uh, maybe certain pathways in mice to understand how they might operate similarly in humans or maybe you're introducing a disease-causing mutation in mice so that you can have a better model to study that disease progression in. But yeah, the ethics, I mean, I think that comes into play when you talk about applying CRISPR to humans, and especially humans very early in development. So one of the biggest controversies right now with CRISPR is whether or not it should be used early in development, such as in the embryo, to install permanent changes that would affect not only the individual that develops from that embryo, but also all of their future offspring, because those changes would be passed on through the generations. They would be passed on through the generations. Well, if that individual had children. But I mean, if you modify an embryo, think about you start with one cell that will end up dividing trillions of times to form all of the cells of the growing 
fetus and the baby and the child, including that eventual adult's own germ cells, sperm or eggs. And so by making changes that early in development, you're making changes that would be passed on every time that individual reproduces. That's different than, let's say, you have a patient living with a disease, an adult patient, and you might edit their blood cells if they have a disease like sickle cell. That could cure the disease, but because you're only editing a subset of that patient's cells, those cells that are affected by the disease, you know, you're curing the disease, but it's not going to be passed on. So they would still propagate the same genes through their germ cells, sperm or eggs, um, as they started with before the CRISPR treatment. And so in, in the scientific community, we talk about the difference between somatic gene editing, editing body cells that are, of course, important in our bodies, but they don't reproduce the organism. So muscle cells, heart cells, skin cells versus germ cells like sperm, eggs, embryonic stem cells, cells that can pass on their genetic information to future offspring during reproduction. The somatic treatment that you mentioned that can correct something in a living adult person, maybe fix your eyesight or something like that, that seems probably pretty not that controversial, right? It's just like another medical treatment. But if I've got a history, you know, if there's a family with a history of, you know, pick your genetic disease, diabetes or whatever it is, and given the chance to go into the embryo of somebody who's, who's, you know, all of their relatives have had to suffer through this thing in their lives, and then you've got it in the embryo, where you can correct that. What's the argument against that? Well, just, you know, I think some of the things that I talk about, I was just visiting with students this morning, and um, how, how accessible would that kind of a treatment be? I mean, right now, that doesn't exist. If it becomes possible, it'll probably only be available for people that have the money to spend on in vitro fertilization with this add-on feature of CRISPR-based gene editing. And already, I mean, IVF is 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 not offered unless you have ten or twenty thousand dollars to spare. Um, insurance usually doesn't cover it. So I think when you start talking about changing the permanent genetic composition of of a human and his or her offspring, those issues of access start to feel a bit more important because those are lasting changes. And you could imagine that you go ten, twenty, fifty, a hundred, a thousand years down the road, and you're you're going to have individuals that have had their genes edited or their forefathers' genes were edited and those that weren't. That makes sense. And that's going to exacerbate any class differences with people. All the people with the money now are also all the healthiest people. And then the people with less money are now the ones with the diseases and everything, which has kind of a chain reaction. So that, that actually is a pretty valid argument, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's kind of one of the concerns if you zoom out. Now, I, I would agree. I mean, I think in terms of what medical treatments should or should not be used, Ultimately, it should be a risk-benefit analysis, and I think the same thing is true of, of a tool like CRISPR. And, you know, people that say it's, it's not natural to change our DNA, I mean, I think there are a lot of, of medical breakthroughs that aren't really natural. I mean, a heart transplant certainly isn't natural, but if it saves someone's life, I think, you know, and it's, and it's safe and it's proven to be effective, then why shouldn't we do that? And I think editing DNA is, is no different in that regard, but there are other issues that are true for other medicines that need to be considered, like, like access and and inequality and things like that. And your lab is going to be set up at Columbia University. So where does the U.S. fall and how does the international community address this? Is, is it a pretty tight international community of research or does it, is there a huge amount of disparity based on the policies of certain governments? I think there, there are certainly some differences. Some countries, it would be illegal to edit genes or edit DNA in embryos and use those embryos to establish pregnancies. 
The U.S. is not one of them. There's actually no prohibition legally against that, but the FDA would be regulating any use of, of gene editing in that way. And so you'd have to go through an FDA approval process. So in that sense, it wouldn't be allowed currently. Um, and there are other countries that have similar situations where it, there might be kind of loose regulations surrounding it, but but not hard, you know, legal prohibition. Um, China's a, a country that's been kind of at the forefront of, of doing some of the early experiments, testing CRISPR in embryos. The first three research articles came out of China. None of them used embryos that were established for pregnancies. But the most recent paper that just came out, actually two papers came out, one was from the UK and one was from a research group in Oregon. And, you know, so I think this research is, is happening in a lot of different places. And we'd like to have international consensus on how to proceed. But, you know, I think the reality is different cultures, different uh, value systems in other parts of the world may be different than, than how it goes in the U.S., and part of the challenge is coming to some kind of, of agreement and preventing what one could imagine happening, which is something's not allowed here, but it's allowed somewhere else. And so consumers or parents and physicians go to other jurisdictions to access those treatments. And exactly that happened with an assisted reproductive technology very recently where a physician from New York um, conducted a procedure uh, known as uh, mitochondrial replacement therapy. We don't have to go into the details, but the point is it wouldn't have been allowed to do it in the U.S., and so he flew the mother to Mexico, and that was where the embryo implantation occurred. And was it successful? I think it was. It was. The baby boy was born in April 2016 in Guadalajara, Mexico. You might remember when this was in the news. All of the headlines called it the first three-parent baby. That's because mitochondrial replacement therapy involves putting the nucleus of an egg from a mother with a mitochondrial disorder, in this case it was Lee syndrome, into a healthy donor's egg with the nucleus removed, then fertilizing it with a father's sperm. And you know, it wasn't so experimental that it was unsafe to do this. The same kinds of treatments have been approved for clinical trials in the UK. But just the fact that, you know, if you have regulations surrounding something, it's not going to necessarily stop people from going elsewhere to access them. Yeah, people are already doing that. Exactly. Crossing yeah. borders to get certain treatments or Stem certain... Stem cell tourism is, is definitely a problem. And, you know, I think the concern about having overly restrictive regulations in the U.S. is that are people going to just go elsewhere? Yeah. Of course, makes... that's also not an argument to, to say, let's do everything here. Yeah, of course. Yeah, everybody's got to decide what's best for them. And yeah, I mean, getting the international community to agree on anything is difficult. So talking about something with scientific and potentially ethical implications, religious implications, whatever people believe is really complicated. Now, you're a scientist. You're doing all the research on all this stuff. But because it's such a cutting-edge technology, you've also got to worry about all the policy involved and all, all of these things. I mean, how do you balance working on all that stuff? Well, I'd say, you know, the policy and regulatory side of things doesn't really impact my day-to-day -day research. But, you know, as I was as researching and writing the book, you know, one thing that Jennifer has has, I think, done an incredible job of. The Jennifer that Dr. Sternberg is talking about is none other than Jennifer Doudna, his PhD advisor and one of the two women who first demonstrated that CRISPR-Cas9 could be used to edit DNA. Hashtag women in science, hashtag ladyboss, hashtag Nobel Prize. Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier published their groundbreaking paper in the journal Science in August of 2012. In an article for Nature, Doudna recounted that one colleague called her up a few months later to say, I hope you're sitting down because it's unbelievable how well it's working. It usually takes a new molecular tool like this several years to gain traction. 
But in the next four months, at least six more papers were published describing different ways science could use CRISPR-Cas9 to engineer DNA. When it came to instant popularity, CRISPR was basically the fidget spinner of the biology world. You know, one thing that Jennifer has done an incredible job of is getting outside of our comfort zone, which tends to be the research laboratory, scientific conferences where you're with your fellow scientists that think about the research side of things and not always the kind of big picture and real world applications and implications. And, you know, she was one of the leading voices in bringing this controversy over editing the human germline, these making edits in a heritable way, bringing that to the public's attention. Um, I was present at a small bioethics meeting that was one of the first to discuss this back in 2015 in Napa Valley. We ended up publishing a white paper on gene editing that we uh, published in Science. And then at the end of that year was uh, an international meeting that brought together representatives from the UK, China, and all around the world actually to start discussing some of these issues. So, you know, my day-to-day research is so far removed from that, but I think, you know, Jennifer provides a really good example for how as scientists, we can't live inside our bubble. We need to, we need to be thinking about how our work makes impacts on other parts of the world and, and other parts of society and, you know, start that conversation if, if no one else is. Yeah, it seems so straightforward at first glance. You know, let's develop a technology that can save people. Great. That's fantastic. Let's do it. But then, yeah, as you said, the domino effect is, is pretty intense. Where is your research focused right now or where is this mostly being applied? Are there particular diseases or conditions or is it just all over the place right now? So there's a, a couple of companies um, going after some of the more common monogenic genetic diseases. These are diseases where there's a single gene mutation that's known to cause the disease. Some examples would be sickle cell, cystic fibrosis, muscular dystrophy. Um, and there are three main companies that are developing CRISPR-based therapeutics, and there are others that are using gene editing with different kinds of technologies. I think the one area that we might see progress the fastest is in a, an area of cancer treatment known as cancer immunotherapy. This is a, a type of treatment that uses the, the body's immune system to try to fight and kill cancerous cells. And so CRISPR is now being combined with immunotherapy to essentially edit immune cells to make them either more effective at recognizing cancer or proliferate longer or, or work when they're um, transplanted from an, a different donor. So I think cancer treatment is, is and actually the first clinical trials in China have already begun using CRISPR-modified immune cells. And recently, although this didn't use gene editing, the first gene therapy product was approved by the FDA to treat cancer using genetically modified immune cells. So I think that's an area where there's been very rapid development and where CRISPR is, is going to be a critical tool to kind of bring these treatments forward. And it was successfully utilized, I think, in some kind of eye treatment with um, some adolescents recently. The FDA approved that and, and some kids are get basically kids are getting their eyesight back, right? Uh, that wasn't with CRISPR. There are certain congenital forms of blindness that are also being pursued. This was a different gene therapy drug okay. that, that, that you're speaking of. But I think these things are very related. Um, and, you know, one of the exciting things is conventional gene therapy is is adding genes kind of randomly. I mean, just getting an entire healthy gene to the cells of interest. And there's a chance that with CRISPR, we can do that, but in an even more accurate and kind of safe way. And so I think hopefully we'll see down the road the same kinds of treatments, but using gene editing. And you're talking about treatments. And so far we've talked about treatments, but for every breakthrough like this, there are people who are focused on treatments and in correcting problems. And then there are people who are maybe looking towards augmentation. 
Is that occurring yet? And are governments going after trying to create superhumans and super soldiers yet? Or is that is that really a minority? I don't know of anyone actually going after that. Certainly not government funded. I think this is an issue that comes up. I mean, I just gave some questions to the, to the students I was with earlier today. Would you use CRISPR for removing the mutations that cause Huntington's disease? Almost all of them raised their hand. What about introducing a mutation that lowers the risk of heart disease? It's maybe half of the people that raised their hand for the Huntington's. And then the last example was a mutation that's associated with greater intelligence. And then very few people thought we should be doing that. Oh, So that last example, that seems like a clear type of enhancement mutation. But the middle case, reducing your risk of heart disease, that, that might fall into the bucket of disease prevention, something that seems less ethically fraught. But at the same time, it's actually enhancing your genome above its kind of starting point by, by adding in a mutation that's associated with some improved condition. So, you know, the point is it's a spectrum. I think there are some things that are, are obviously just preventing disease, and it seems like we should be going after those. Some things that are clearly only aimed at maybe your more obvious types of enhancements like intelligence or greater muscle strength. But there are a lot of things in the middle that fall into this gray area where, you know, I think that's a, a question. What, what should be permissible and what shouldn't? I'm reminded of, and we talked a little bit before we started recording about the movie Gattaca, which is a fantastic movie with Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman, but that really pretty much describes exactly what kind of a dystopic future we can end up with. How, how far are we from even being able to do something on that scale where, where you're, you go to the doctor and you kind of shop and you pick from a list, I want this gene and this gene, and I don't want this gene and this gene? I want to say very far, but I mean... One thing that's growing in use is something called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, where parents that are using in vitro fertilization for conception can have physicians fertilize multiple egg cells and then do some kind of diagnostic sequencing or chromosomal analysis on multiple embryos to select one that has the that might not have one of the mutations that those two parents could give to their offspring. So it's already possible to avoid certain mutations through PGD. That's not the same as saying, let's use CRISPR to put something in that neither parent started with in the first place, but we already have the capability to select certain genetic states of future individuals using IVF combined with this pre-implantation genetic diagnosis technique. And that I think is exactly the way he says it in Gattaca. He says we're not necessarily we're not giving him new genes we're just choosing your the best parents, of what was there to begin the with best right? of what was there i've actually played that clip in some of my talks so i almost have it memorized but <laughs> in the beginning of the movie when the main character vincent is a toddler his parents go to a genetics clinic to select the traits they want in their next child here's the clip he's talking about i've taken the liberty of eradicating any potentially prejudicial conditions uh premature baldness myopia alcoholism and addictive susceptibility uh, propensity for violence obesity etc we didn't want I mean, diseases, yes, but... Uh... Right. We were just wondering if, if it's good to just leave a few things to, to chance. You want to give your child the best possible start. Believe me, we have enough imperfection built in already. No, your child doesn't need any additional burdens. And keep in mind, this child is still you. Simply the best of you. You could conceive naturally a thousand times and never get such a result. At the same time, other things that he's talking about when he lists the conditions that he's chosen for the, the future child are no diabetes, no alcoholism. And those are things that are definitely not simple genetic conditions where there's one gene that either causes it or doesn't cause it. Most of those kinds of traits or, or characteristics are either largely influenced by environment and upbringing, 
or and or are polygenic, meaning there are many, many genes involved. In some cases, we know some of them. In some cases, we might know very few of them. But usually there's thousands or tens of thousands of mutations, each of which plays a tiny, tiny role in that trait. And so thinking about using gene editing to kind of select for no diabetes at this point is still way in the realm of science fiction and I think is going to stay there for many things for a very, very long time. Some things will probably never be something you can select for because we just don't know. We don't know enough about the genome to understand what you would even choose. We're far enough along to where you can go in front of a high school class. It's high school students Mm -hmm. you spoke with this morning and talk to them about the ethical implications of gene therapy. I mean, this is not a thing that I would have imagined doing in elementary or middle school growing up. Oh, I didn't. I don't think I knew a thing about DNA when I was in high school. I mean, I learned all of that stuff in college. Um, but, you know, I think increasingly with, with things like 23andMe and other companies that will sequence parts of your genome or analyze your genome and tell you what that means for you. I mean, I think increasingly we're going to have to be thinking about the role of genetics in our life, I think, more than maybe 20 years ago. Yeah. What else did you talk to them about that we haven't covered? Well, we didn't actually get much into this, but, you know, one of the things that I think is equally important as the use of CRISPR in non-humans. So I think a lot of agricultural companies are going to very aggressively be using CRISPR for editing crops or editing livestock, either um, to provide benefits for farmers in terms of how they grow or maybe being less reliant on certain pesticides or also developing crops that might have um, traits that consumers will desire. So there's a, a case of a mushroom that was edited with CRISPR to be less, that it doesn't brown. So you can imagine mushrooms that can sit in your pantry for weeks and they're never going to go brown. Or um, you can imagine there's, there's a couple products that they're not commercialized yet, but there's a soybean that has a more favorable fat content, the soybean oil. There's a potato that has lower levels of a neurotoxin when it gets fried. And these were, these were edited, not with CRISPR in this case, with a different kind of gene editing tool. But, you know, I think in the, in the world of food production, there could be very major influences from, from CRISPR and gene editing. Yeah. Is this what Monsanto does? I mean, they're one of the players, but, you know, DuPont Pioneer is another player. Um, Selectus, I mean, they're, or Calyx, I guess, is a subsidiary of Selectus. And I think there's some excitement that unlike some of the tools that were used to make genetically modified foods, you know, with a tool like CRISPR, that's much easier to harness. It's not going to only live with these few big you know, seed producers, but it's going to be something that's more available to, to more breeders and more farmers. But this is the technology that we're talking about when people refer to GMOs. Well, it gets a little confusing. Um, it depends a little bit on, on what definitions you're using. So some people, when they talk about a GMO, they mean a, a food that has had a, a foreign gene spliced somewhere into the genome. And most GMOs to date have been transgenic, meaning they have a gene from some other organism integrated into the genome. Um, so like BT cotton, for example, is transgenic. Gene-edited crops might not have any scar of the, of the gene editing. It might be a mutation that is no different than the kind of mutation that could have occurred through, through nature, through natural evolution. So it's actually causing some problems for regulators how these new kinds of gene-edited crops would even be regulated. Do they fall under the GMO bucket? Do they need to be regulated as GMOs or not as GMOs? And I think some of that is actually still evolving. The issues regulators are having in deciding what counts as a GMO and what doesn't speaks to the strange ways we decide which scientific processes we deem safe and which we don't. When you use artificial selection to breed crops, you're letting nature roll the genetic dice and then choosing which plants have the traits you want. When you use genetic engineering, 
you choose which traits you want and insert the genes for that trait into future plants. The regulation conundrum comes down to whether those genes come from within the plant or from another organism, but the thing is, living things share a whole lot of DNA to begin with. You share 60% of your DNA with a banana, for instance. And while where a gene comes from is important, there are other plant breeding techniques that a lot of people don't even know about that honestly sound a lot scarier. Take mutation breeding. That's where breeders bombard plants with radiation to trigger DNA mutations, and it's been going on for decades. That process has given rise to varieties of pears, wheat, rice, peanuts, the barley used in scotch and beer, and red grapefruit. Despite that mutation process, you can buy red grapefruit that's labeled organic. When you think about genetic modification, it's good to realize that we've been genetically modifying plants and animals for centuries. The big difference today is that people doing it wear lab coats. Hey, Cody. Our sponsor today is Havenly, which is this online interior design company that makes interior design accessible to normal people, which definitely includes me and you. Yeah. On average, traditional interior designers charge something like $4,500 a room. And the packages with Havenly start at just $79. Havenly also recently launched a design quickie, which allows anybody to chat with a designer for free to get advice on any design-related questions. If you go to their website, havenly.com slash curiosity, you can take a design quiz where they'll tell you your personal style. They let you select a designer that meets your style, and then you work with that designer online to create a beautiful room. Then they actually help you order your furniture and have them delivered to your home. It's super easy. Exactly. Havenly is the best online interior design solution, and through their innovative process, they've designed thousands of beautiful rooms for lots of happy clients, including Curiosity listeners who get $50 off their full package when they go to havenly.com slash curiosity and use the promo code curiosity. Maybe we should rearrange our podcast studio. What? Our podcast studio is beautiful. I don't know what you're talking about, Cody. I really like the weird cotton shower curtains that we have up. Those cotton shower curtains are very soundproof. Thank you very much. But maybe we should go to havenly.com slash curiosity for a full $50 off a full design package with code curiosity. You mentioned non-humans, and I don't know if this sounds too silly, but my head immediately went to pets and domestic animals. I mean, certain domestic animals that are maybe really cute or really wonderful, but have a penchant for violence, perhaps, or wanting your poodle to act more like a golden retriever or having a Pomeranian that isn't constantly barking all the time, things like that. Is there any of that going on yet? Yeah, well, I actually was just at a um, biohacking conference in Oakland, and there was a panel discussion between a colleague of mine who's at Stanford, Hank Greeley, and I forget this fellow's name, but he is a dog breeder, and he's been lobbying to use CRISPR to treat genetic diseases in dogs. Part of the debate was was how much the FDA should or shouldn't be involved in that. I think dogs is an interesting case, too, because people talk about, you know, if we use CRISPR in pets, I mean, isn't that wrong? Like, we shouldn't be playing with their genetics. But if you look at dogs, I mean, there's nothing that natural about the full range of sizes and types and hair color and hair length. And that all happened through a massive amount of, of genetic selection and aggressive breeding. Yeah, dog breeders are, that's a whole thing. So would it, you know, would it be that different to then add CRISPR into the mix for a new kind of breeding where you'd have a different layer of control or, or, or ability to modify the genome? Right now we do it all the time by saying, well, only this purebred dog is going to mate with that other purebred dog. Now you could add in CRISPR and, and start selecting for new variants that maybe you couldn't access through traditional breeding. Another example I, I love talking about in the, in the world of, of gene editing in animals 
There's a company called Recombinetics based in Minnesota. They are developing gene editing in, in livestock, and they have generated cattle that derive from parents that grow horns like most dairy cattle do, but these gene-edited cattle no longer have horns. They've literally used gene editing to create hornless cattle. Hmm. So think about now gene editing giving you an ability to literally make a change to the genome that removes horns. I mean, that's talking about sci-fi. I mean, that's still unbelievable to me to think about. They didn't remove cattle horns to make them more stylish or aerodynamic or anything. They did it to make raising cattle more ethical. Each year in the U.S., roughly 80% of dairy cattle and 25% of beef cattle get their horns removed, since horns tend to injure both people and other cows. But it's a bloody, painful process, and it's sometimes done without any anesthesia. If you could breed cattle without horns, it would make the whole situation a lot better. In 2016, scientists did just that. Yeah, I mean, will we be able to create humans with wings or anything like that in the future? I know it sounds a little crazy, but uh, where were the limits? Yeah. I, I I mean, I don't think I would say definitely no to the humans with wings. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, the example with the cows does raise that question. I mean, nature has evolved a lot of interesting things. And the more we learn about the genetics behind different kinds of traits and physical characteristics, the more you could imagine making use of that information and a technology to rewrite DNA to access things that don't already exist in our world today. Another example, there are there are scientists that are using gene editing to make changes in Asian elephant DNA that make the Asian elephant genome look more like the woolly mammoth genome. And there's a legitimate hope by reputable scientists that we might one day be able to resurrect something akin to a woolly mammoth using a tool like gene editing. That's actually research being done. Wow. And there, there was just a book that came out, I think, describing it, and apparently it's already been optioned for a movie. So, so people can go read about it if they want. The book is called Wooly, the true story of the de-extinction of one of history's most iconic creatures by Ben Mesrick. And you can find a link in the show notes. Mesrick has already had two books adapted into films. Ever heard of a little movie called The Social Network? I think we actually also have an article on Curiosity.com about that. And you mentioned that we kind of covered most of the highlights of your talk in front of the high schoolers. Do you prefer talking to a high school audience about these things? You know, I have to say, driving up here, that was exactly what I was thinking. It's almost more fun to, to work with students that are earlier in their education because, well, first of all, as, a, as an educator, thinking about how to bridge that divide and thinking about what does your audience come into the room with and how can you describe the work you do or the implications of the work you do in, in language and in a context that will make sense to them and reach them. That's always fun for myself to prepare and then, you know, to, to see students perking up and, and getting interested in some of these ethical issues is actually very rewarding. Uh, a few weeks ago, I, I did a demo with some sixth graders. Uh, I put together a 20-question DNA trivia, and then we extracted DNA from strawberries afterwards. And it was so fun. I mean, it was, I have to say, way more fun than any laboratories I taught as a PhD student. So it's something that I definitely want to do more of. And I think, you know, thinking about ways to make genetics come alive for, for young students is, is something that I hope to continue doing even when I'm a professor and probably getting paid to teach graduate students instead. Yeah. How do you extract DNA from a strawberry? Uh, it's an ethanol precipitation, basically creating solution conditions where it's no longer soluble and it, it precipitates out of solution. It forms kind of a stringy goo. It's very simple. You can, you can buy, I mean, you need rubbing alcohol, uh, some detergent, and that's mostly it, some salt, detergent, water crushed up strawberries and rubbing alcohol that's cold. And, and that's pretty much all you need. And you can kind of spoon it out with a, a skewer or a toothpick. 
the students love to take it home so you can put it in an Eppendorf tube for them and that pretty much made their day. So I want to do that, that demo again. That's fun. And then you, you know, put it under a microscope and... Uh, we didn't do that, but I mean, even having gone through this trivia experiment, teaching about what is DNA, and then they literally have this stringy goo that's DNA from strawberries to take home with them, I think that's very powerful. Extracting DNA from a strawberry is a really popular and super easy way to learn about DNA. We'll include a how-to video in the show notes if you want to try doing it at home. And you can actually also do the experiment using a cheek swab where they're they're extracting DNA from their own sloughed-off cheek cells. So maybe next time I'll do that because then you've literally got your own DNA sitting in a tube that you can look at and, and think about what it means. When you say that, I'm trying to visualize, and I, I thought I had a good understanding of what DNA is coming into this, but I didn't realize it could be like a physical thing of it. What, what do you mean like when you say extracting the DNA, like, I mean, physically, it's like a goo. I thought DNA was like microscopic. <laughs> well, in a cell, you'd never be able to see it. But from many, many cells, I mean, taking three or four strawberries, there's billions, if not more cells in those strawberries. And so all the DNA combined, I mean, that's a tangible amount of material. We actually, one of the trivia questions we did is, if you took all the DNA from your body and strung it together in one long string, where would it take you? And it would take you to the sun and back many times over. So obviously, you're making it in one long double helix, which which the DNA in your body would never do. But just to give you a sense for three billion letters of DNA, yes, it's microscopic. Yes, it's crammed inside of a nucleus inside of your cells. But but there is a lot of it. And and so, yeah, if you extract it from strawberries, from your cheek cells, I mean, that's enough to to see when it's precipitated in ethanol for sure. Yeah. On an earlier episode of the Curiosity podcast, we talked to an expert on prosthetics and the human touch, and he talked about decoding neurons in the brain and basically figuring out, you know, this neuron means this, this neuron means this. In terms of DNA and RNA, and, you know, you're talking about the billions and billions of characters. How far along are we at in understanding what does what? Do we have a pretty good grasp on, let's say, this chunk means this disease or this chunk means this disease? From DNA sequencing, for diseases that are monogenic, that are caused by a single mutation or a disruption of a single gene, we've advanced pretty far to understanding those causes. I think there's something like 7,000 different genetic diseases whose whose cause has been identified. Wow. But again, coming back to this word polygenic, I mean, most traits you would think of are not going to be one mutation or one gene. There's no gene for happiness or gene for strength. You know, these are these are a combination of of many, many different influences. That being said, with the explosion in DNA sequencing in recent years, we're starting to to learn more about at least what gene variants are are involved in some of those traits. So 23andMe is this company that will analyze your DNA and and they actually, through the service, get access to millions of users' DNA. And they publish articles analyzing those DNA sequences combined with kind of uh, uh, surveys that they give their consumers about sleep patterns or or heart disease risk or kind of familial history on certain things. And so they put out a paper, I think last year sometime on genetic variants associated with being a morning person. So that's not to say there's a gene for being a morning person, but through their study using, you know, advanced statistics, they can deduce what genetic variants are associated with being a morning person. That doesn't mean I can make you a morning person. I wish I could be made a morning person, but it means that we at least understand some of the genetic influences. Is there anything we didn't cover? Anything you wanted to add about any of your work? Or Well, yeah. I mean, ironically, we didn't touch much on where CRISPR even comes from. And it's something that, you know, I think it's it's a lot more exciting to talk about the 
the applications of gene editing. But what was cool for me was being, you know, in Jennifer's lab studying CRISPR before gene editing and CRISPR even made sense together. You know, CRISPR comes from bacteria. There were a few dozen researchers around the world studying how bacteria fight off viral infections. When I started working on this back in 2010, I actually had two different kinds of PhD projects I was considering. One was studying a pathway called RNA interference that was known to be involved in cancer and development. And it seemed like kind of has the best of, of being a fun research topic for the lab I was in, but also having direct application to human health. And the second was CRISPR, which was this complete mystery. There were very few people studying it. So that was a bonus in terms of, of starting in a field that had very few people. It was, you know, no competition really, but it seemed so far away from human health that I, I worried a little bit, well, is this not going to be relevant? It's going to be hard to get the next job because I'm studying something that exists in bacteria and doesn't really relate to human biology. And that was literally what I thought in 2010. And I decided I'm going to work on this anyway, because it's this cool mystery and who knows what we're going to find out about it. And then a couple years later, and we're learning about these enzymes and how we can harness them for something totally different and how they're actually the most powerful way to do that thing, DNA targeting, DNA editing that we've ever had before. So I think, you know, that's something that I'm taking to my new lab is just this curiosity driven research and going into the invisible microscopic world in search of, of where the next discovery might be. That's really cool. And now we do end every podcast with a little segment called the Curiosity Challenge. And I'll try to teach you something. You'll probably know this, but I will uh, ask you about something that I learned on curiosity.com. Scientists discovered in March 2016 that there's a component of aging, something that typically happens to a person as they become older, that they've actually discovered a gene plays a role uh, in that process. And they knew that there were several genes involved in related ways, but this is the first time a gene for this particular aging trait has been identified. Do you know what that trait is? Brain hair? I don't know. You are correct. <laughs> so it's a gene called IRF4. And it plays a role in graying hair, not just environmental factors like stress or smoking. So I found that out on curiosity.com and it, it did want me to get into the question. I mean, do you think that someday people are going to be splicing genes so that instead of having to color our hair, we can just kind of cut that gene out of there and uh, not worry about it? Like with the mushrooms. I'm much more interested in, in baldness and figuring out a way that I can keep my all my hair in my head that is there right now. Ah, there but, you go. But, so right now, gray hair is okay as long as I have gray hair in the first place. <laughs> right, I like that. Very optimistic. Okay, so this is a bit of a current events question. Um, where do scientists think that most heavy atoms have come from? That I definitely have no idea. So if I've read the news right, it's colliding neutron stars which LIGO just detected the gravitational waves from. It's like this insane news story from the last couple of weeks. They detected two colliding neutron stars, and they also detected electromagnetic radiation from it, which is, I think, the first time they've ever had both gravitational waves and electromagnetic radiation from somewhere in outer space. I knew that there was something about neutron stars in the news. I know that Ashley and Joni covered it on our Facebook page, so they're going to kill me for not knowing the answer to that. And... Hopefully I actually gave you correct information now, but I know there was something about neutron stars flooding the universe with, with heavy atoms. That's where a lot of the heavy atoms come from. Sure, we'll fact check that one. Please but do. It, yeah. sounded, it sounded very impressive. Dr. Sternberg is absolutely right. The lightest elements were created in the Big Bang, and the largest stars can fuse elements as heavy as iron in their cores. 
As for where elements heavier than that came from, scientists weren't sure. For a long time, it was thought that they were forged in the stellar explosions known as supernova. But lately, all signs have pointed to collisions of neutron stars, the small, dense cores left over after large stars die. We just didn't have the proof. Then, on August 17, 2017, LIGO detected gravitational waves from a collision of two neutron stars, and their hunch was confirmed. According to some estimates, that collision produced around 200 Earth masses of gold and 500 Earth masses of platinum. I mean, when you're pulling out neutron stars, you're already talking about basically re- rewriting genes, and now you're in a neutron stars. It's just, where's the limit with you? I don't know. I guess science. I can't go outside of science. It's only only science. Are those your main hobbies and interests? No, no. I, I love playing sports, and I used to be a musician. Um, I grew up playing music, almost went to conservatory. My last thing I'm doing out in California before moving to New York is I'm subbing for Michael Jackson Tribute Band on keyboards. We're doing a tour up to Seattle, Eugene, and Portland. And my former roommate used to be the keyboardist. He moved, but while he was still there, I was subbing for him when he was out of town. So that's probably like the... One of the funnest things I've done in the Bay Area musically since I moved out there. I played in a funk band for a bunch of years, too. So you almost uh, went to a conservatory for keys? For classical piano. But then you grow a little bit older and you realize, like, no one wants to hear classical piano. But if you can play in a funk band or play play in a Michael Jackson band, that that is actually kind of cool. I don't know. Be- Beethoven's piano is not a number eight. Pathétique is pretty... That was what I played for my auditions. No way, really? Yeah, yeah. I love that piece. I was going to try to come up with, a, like piano trivia question, but I couldn't, I couldn't think of a good enough one. That was a great curiosity challenge question. And I want to thank you again, Dr. Sam Sternberg, assistant professor of biochemistry and molecular biophysics at Columbia University, starting your own lab there. Congratulations on that. That's a, a huge deal. Thanks a lot. You learned so much in this episode. Do you want to learn a little bit more? Because right now I'm going to give you your extra credit question. Because it's so sad, researchers have relied on the final scene of one movie in thousands of psychology studies. Here's your question. When scientists want to make a research subject cry, what 1979 movie's final scene do they show? The answer, after this. Have you ever been listening to the Curiosity Podcast and wanted to share a clip on Facebook or Twitter? Well, here's some super exciting news. Now you can, thanks to Greta.com. That's G-R-E-T-T-A. You can stream our podcast on greta.com slash curiosity, and their podcast player will follow along with a written transcript of each episode while you listen. When you hear a clip you want to share, just find it and click share. Greta will build you a video for you to share with your friends so that you can help spread the word about our podcast. Again, that's greta.com slash curiosity. And drop us a line to let us know what you think of this super cool new service. Explore history's surprising connections with a new podcast, The Thread with Ozzy. It's like a cross between revisionist history and six degrees of separation. You'll discover how various historical strands are woven together to create a historic figure, a big idea, or an unthinkable tragedy. Like how John Lennon's murder was actually 63 years in the making. Witness how their stories hinge on the past and influence the future. The show is already a chart topper. Get the thread with Ozzy, that's O-Z-Y, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Do you like surveys? Well, I've got some really good news for you if you do. We want to hear your thoughts on the Curiosity Podcast, so we created a super quick and easy survey. Please visit curiosity.com slash survey and answer a few questions so we can make our podcast better. Again, that's curiosity.com slash survey. It's quick and easy and will really help us bring you better content every week. 
There's a link in the show notes too, but one more time, that URL is curiosity.com slash survey. We really appreciate the help. Here's your extra credit answer. The thing that researchers use to make people cry is the final scene of the 1979 film, The Champ. In that movie, John Voight plays a gambling, hard-drinking, down-on-his-luck boxer, and the final scene is a real tearjerker. Even the death of Bambi's mother couldn't hold a candle to it. We won't spoil the ending for you, but you can find a link to the scene in the show notes or search for the word champ on curiosity.com. Thanks for listening to the Curiosity Podcast. If you want to help us out, please leave us a review on iTunes or tell one of your friends about the show. For the Curiosity Podcast, I'm Ashley Hamer. And I'm Cody Goff. See you next week.